In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. On today's podcast, we discuss brainwashing. Two plus two equals five. In George Orwell's 1984, he ponders whether or not belief in such a consensus reality makes the lie true. In our last podcast, we learned that our thought process is inherently flawed with cognitive bias. Knowing that we are all prone to influence, is there an extreme version of social influence? Good morning, Roger, Kelly. Good morning. Listeners, welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Um, another Saturday morning. It's cool. Fall is here. And uh, I want to get this uh, on record. Just I want to hear my voice say how much I appreciate the change of seasons. Because there's probably going to be a time in the dead of winter where we're recording and I'm miserable. And I want to remind myself that I do appreciate it. So, Sean, if you're listening to yourself again... It's uh, it's nice to have uh, the seasons change. Yeah, living in the Northeast, this is the time of year to be here. I think there's perfect a couple periods of time when you're living in the Northeast where you're really grateful for being here. Fall, spring, you know, summer gets a little bit too hot. I don't even know about spring. Spring kind of sucks around here. It's all wet. It can be true. Yeah. So, you know what I did this morning? I didn't do the forward ambulation and optic flow, but I was making my my coffee. And I put an earbud in, and I was listening to our last episode on cognitive bias. And uh, I enjoyed listening to our conversation because I was trying to remind myself of the things we discussed because I do recall a number of things that we wanted to revisit. And I think we're going to have a future podcast on uh, psychopathy. Um, But the one area where we all realized we never got into detail of when it comes to extremes and thinking and uh, manipulation and coercing somebody in a certain di- direction is a very important topic that a lot of people probably know the word and they're familiar with. And what is that topic today, Roger? It's going to be brainwashing. It's kind of a yeah. natural extension to that previous podcast that we did. And it's, you know, I think uh, when we, we talk about moving forward today, you know, one of the things, Sean, that I wanted to to mention to you personally is one of the, th- whether we're on the podcast or off the podcast, you and, I, you and I have had some conversations about mm-hmm. what's going on in the world. Yep. And you've acknowledged that there's primary differences that exist between you and I. Although we grew up in the same family, our career trajectories and lives took different directions. Yeah, I'm handsome. You've got your... <laughs> <laughs> Well, you were out in, in LA and you were in the marketing field. Yeah, different different culture. Um, I, I, and when that's what we talk about is uh, you're influenced by your surroundings. Mm-hmm. And I w- actually went into like social services. Like I originally started in a children's psychiatric hospital at the age of 21. Mm-hmm. And uh, also went into the criminal justice field, was mm-hmm. in juvenile probation. And eventually my career trajectory took me to going to further education, getting a doctorate in clinical psychology, working as a clinical psychologist. 
and what I was exposed to um, was very influential. And you kind of get exposed to some of the dark side of life. You you kind of step back and you realize how blessed and privileged we were in the environment that we grew up in. And we didn't always expo- get exposed to some of the horrific aspects of abuse and, and neglect. As a middle child, sometimes I would disagree with you there. The, uh, the abuse happened, <laughs> Roger. I think it's important that we confront you on this. Well, here's my, here's my point is I feel like in our conversations that you have somewhat of a distorted view of reality because of lack of exposure. And there's a dark, there's a dark <laughs> side. Here we go. <laughs> I, I'm already just two sips into the coffee and you're going to attack me already. <laughs> it's not meant to be an attack. I know it's like not an we attack. Can, we can appreciate your... Um, positive outlook on life. Your positive outlook in life. Your Belief that human beings are, are good. You... You said he was dangerously naive. <laughs> so you that, that was that. the word. It was dangerously naive. <laughs> and um, listen, it's it's. I, I I think it's a it's a privilege that you get to live in a world where you believe that. I am grateful. Yeah. Um, and day in and day out, whether you're working with a a domestic violence victim mm-hmm. or a rape victim, or even just some good people who were who were scammed out of money. And you'll see this sometimes just like a, a, a widow being scammed out of uh, their security. Uh, and you get to just be exposed to some of the evil that exists. And it's hard when you're, when you're working in a trauma center. Mm-hmm. Um, trauma being you know, post-traumatic events, the psychological aspect. To not shift your attention to the evil and harm that exists in the world and when you're exposed to some of the pain that people have gone through. And empathic people, like, like myself, I think you're an empathic person as well, is that you tend to kind of take on that, that energy a little bit from people who are suffering and in pain. And a lot of mental health therapists and psychologists have that ability. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that I've, I've coped with, with that on a day-to-day basis is to not trust or blindly trust or be obedient to any authority figure Mm -hmm. to do a lot of independent research and to accept the responsibility that I have as a psychologist in making recommendations. I'm just not wired in the way just to accept what somebody tells me to be true. Is that because you believe not everybody has positive intentions? Well, it's not about, I believe I know it to be a fact. And if we're, if we're going to have a conversation later on psychopathy, yeah. antisocial personality, mm-hmm. we can go into the statistics, right? And and really smart people with that personality profile are going to be in positions of power and influence. So it, uh, through, for coming from education, I can tell you that it's transformed me into a person that questions everything. When you come out of college and you get your certification, you're told by this entity to do these things and this will make you successful. I found that doing the exact opposite is what made me successful. (laughs) And I realized a a long time ago that um, I know it's very hard to step outside and and try to go like, and try to admit and say, well, this isn't working and I'm going to question everything. But I'll tell you what, when I started doing that, that's when things changed. That's when I started to, you know, be noticed. And that's when I found that, you know, students were much more, they were just, they were happier. I was, I was doing, you know, I wasn't being risk averse. So 
I can tell you I'm the same way. I feel as if I, I, I wish more people could question more and I just don't want to be dangerously naive. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll look at some of the themes of our podcast, right? Um, it's taking some societal norms and accepted truths and being able to challenge them. Whether you go back to the chemical imbalance theory, do antidepressants even mm-hmm. work, social fear conditioning, what does good therapy look like? Um, and last week, just talking about biases, it's bringing attention to our listening audience about what might be outside of their range of perception. What is, what is accepted to be true that isn't? And so it, it's this natural kind of evolution to talk about how the human mind can be influenced. Mm-hmm. And it can be influenced by people who, whose intention is to serve their own power, their own influence, their own economic security. And that's the opening for today, is how do we get into this direction where we can, we can look at our, what are the techniques, what are the strategies on both an individual level but also a larger group level. I can't help but look back at some of the atrocities that have existed throughout human existence. World War II, as a great example, Nazi Germany. How, what has to happen in order for a group of people to commit genocide? Right? And there's psychological experiments around obedience and conformity that we can get into today okay with the ultimate purpose of understanding our vulnerabilities and to try to train our minds to stay connected to reality and question authority and that's why i think this is such an important podcast are we going to go into you you said we're going to talk about some of these psychological experiments to understand or explain how things have happened because I mean, you're talking about stuff that has happened during wars and is it to understand how it happened or to, I mean, what's the ultimate purpose of a psychological experiment? Is it, we always need to explain things we look for patterns and we, we feel like we want to control stuff is by understanding it a way to control it and prevent it. Well, you're talking about the role of the scientific process. So what drives science? Mm-hmm. What drives science is an intellectual curiosity to try to make sense of something. And so Stanley Milgram, are you guys aware of the Milgram experiments? Yeah. Talk to, I'm, I'm not that familiar with it. So please. Yeah, wasn't that, was Milgram the, um, the uh, lab coat expert telling the people to shock others, but it was fake. We're going to get uh, into the details. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. okay. I, yeah. All right. So Stanley uh, Milgram was, was Jewish. And he was, I think, first a student at Yale, uh, potentially a, a professor. There was a series of experiments, maybe throughout the 50s into early 60s. Don't quote me on the exact date and time. But it came into a period where the Nuremberg trials and were occurring post-World War II. And at some point they found, um, I don't know if it was Heinrich Himmler, or I can't forget the exact name, um, who was responsible for a lot of the, the widespread propaganda in Nazi Germany and developing the death camps and the systematic genocide of Jewish people. So I think if you're a psychologist and you're talking about curiosity mm-hmm. and ultimately psych- psychology is the science of like human behavior, yeah. affect, and cognition, 
what is the benefit of having a psychological science? It's to try to advance our understanding of human beings and to improve the quality of life, decrease suffering. So if we know, or if we have witnessed or bore witness to mass groups of people, large groups of people to commit atrocities, like Mm -hmm. we've been able to witness firsthand the evil that exists within us, we have to understand the context in which that occurs and how is the human mind broken down into a way that you can do such great harm to your fellow man. And I think that was the, that was the intellectual curiosity that drove those experiments. Mm-hmm. And to understand the methodology, Stanley Milgram wanted to understand to what extent would an individual commit harm to another fellow man by following orders. And simply the experimenter was telling the subject that they needed to increase voltage shock mm-hmm. to an individual whenever they got a wrong answer trying to memorize words and with each wrong answer they would increase the level of shock and so the individual sitting who was the subject the other person who was receiving the shocks or Um, was believed to be receiving the shocks, was just an actor. They weren't really receiving the shocks. Mm -hmm. However, the subject did not know that. and They didn't see the subject, though. They just heard the subject, right? Screaming. And and banging. And banging. Right? And then the subject also knew the increased voltage could cause increased danger, right? And so what Milgram was able to determine was there was a great strong stress response for the subject. So you can tell it was distressing for the subjects to administer the shocks, but would continue to do it if they were told to, right? So this level of obedience and what we're learning is maybe not the, that the, the individual itself may not um, really have this detachment from human suffering, Right? It's not like that person was a psychopath and got something from like this sadistic kind of way of trying to hurt someone else and they were put in a position they were allowed to and they got enjoyment from it. No, that's not what he observed. What he observed is there was great stress upon the subject, but yet they would continue to do it anyway. So how is this in the context of brainwashing? It's people doing things that they probably typically wouldn't do? Well, um, Let's talk about what a definition is, and then let's finish the experiment. Okay. Right? Yeah. So there's almost a diffusion of responsibility that exists, like this belief in the authority figure mm-hmm. knows more. There's got to be a reason I'm doing this. There's that authority bias again. Right? That's that authority bias. Sean, you've demonstrated that throughout I don't the know. course. Hold on a minute. Hey, there's lots of people that I've worked with in the past that are listening to this podcast. I think they would disagree with you that I always, uh, you know, respect the authority i don't know if you're going to work for honda for as long as you do let's leave brands out of this my previous employer actually you're wearing the hat right now (laughs) (laughs) and i'm drinking my coffee from my cup actually let let me share a a quick story um because it's to your point to both your points uh, kelly your story also uh when i was started working um with my previous employer one of the um uh, executives said to me, Sean, there's a saying here that uh, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. And I, I started laughing because um, 
I have always been that nail that sticks up. And um, I think in the context of what he was was trying to explain to me is that maybe I'm not in the position where I needed to be to to make change and influence happen. And I was probably I was actually I know I was arrogant. I was young. I was cocky, and I needed to change my approach and and just um, uh, just stop being so immature and mature in, in the way that I was handling business. But I, that that saying always stuck with me, and it makes me think about how this that saying relates to this topic right now. I think Kelly and I became friends based on this aspect of being nonconformists. Um, breaking all the rules to try to get a response. Now, it was, it was such an interesting way to run the classroom because as a, at the time I was getting my doctorate and working in the school system, I was fascinated by seeing the response. So I would interview kids that were in his classroom I wanted to see if it was in increasing performance because everything he was doing was trying to get kids to think critically mm -hmm. and actually punish any concept of like conformity to yeah, rule. It's true. Right? They would get rewarded. I would love to go into this in a future <laughs> podcast because I want to. I want to understand Kelly more. <laughs> this is absolutely in my head. <laughs> this is absolutely a, a future podcast is okay. to talk about everything he did around this learning process because I thought it was the the future of education at that particular time. We tried to put it together in in, in some writing. Mm -hmm. It still sh still should be, but yeah. you can see how we're pulled back on forces for conformity and rules. Um, but anyway, to your point, Sean, um, we have to like define what is brainwashing yeah right it is a a coercive persuasion right so by definition it's a it's a systematic effort to persuade somebody a non-believer possibly to accept a certain allegiance command or doctrine and it can be applied to like any technique that is designed to manipulate human thought or action against the desire will or knowledge of the individual so we're going to talk about the techniques, but I want to be able to talk about it on an individual level, and I want to be able to generalize it to uh, larger groups of people, in, including citizens, or those who um, are, are vulnerable within a society to act outside of what maybe their moral code even is, and how these techniques can be used upon society to influence us to buy products. Can I, can I start with the question to you with that? How much does a person's vulnerability and fear, so if a person is fearful of, of, of being not, not being part or not being part of the group, in other words, they need to conform. That's a thing, right? Where you, you just have this deep fear of not fitting in. So if everybody's saying one thing and doing one thing, but you think the opposite, right? How much does that pressure of fear play on the individuals and then make them irrational? It seems to be significant in trying to understand conformity and obedience. It ultimately goes back to human evolution. We've only been able to survive through cooperation. Mm -hmm. And so those who were able to align with others in order to survive and protect were able to you know, produce their offspring, protect their offspring, and continue to evolve while those who separated themselves from the group often died out. So we do have to understand that there is something that is biologically and genetically influencing our desire 
to obey and to cooperate. And that's for the ultimate majority of the human population. Now, we don't see that across the board, obviously. So there are outliers. And when we have the podcast on psychopathy and the personality structure of someone who was antisocial, we see that deviates significantly from the norm. But the norm is to be highly influenced by the group and to cooperate and to be obedient in order to survive. We see this in social psychology research across the board from the ASH experiment that we're going to talk about all the way to just sometimes diffusion of responsibility. So if there's a lot more people in a crowd or in a group and something amoral is going on, someone is less likely to stand out and and to try to protect that individual because of the larger number of people that exist. Is it because they think someone else will step up and stop it from happening? There's uh, it's that bystander effect. That's that's what I was thinking yeah. of, yeah. Like if there's a car accident. Right. But, yeah. but that's possible. I mean, that's that positive intention, mm-hmm. right? The other uh, possibility that exists is, you know, I don't want to put myself at risk for any situation. So get out of modern times, forget about a car accident. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are going to call the police or, you know, everything's built into society to be, to be able to inform that person. But let's say you're in a large group of people and somebody's getting beat up or abused, right? And you're standing in that, in that crowd. If no one else is running to help that person, right? You're, are you going to put yourself at risk, right? So even if, if somebody believes that is amoral, they're unwilling to stand out and put themselves at risk in that particular situation. So we learn a lot about human beings. There's going to be this self-protection process that exists. Mm-hmm. Go back to your experience with your work when you went out there and you were younger. I mean, when we talk about how conformity, so now we're talking about conformity. Had, did you ever have moments where you went in and you're like, look, I don't like the process because you're very creative. Did you ever sit there and like, did anybody just get you angry where you were like, I don't like that, but you just didn't say anything, even though you knew that maybe your idea was better or there was a better idea. You just didn't speak up because you wanted to, you didn't want to be that nail, as you say. I would say I learned how to work within the system. Um, Roger, you read lots of like stoicism, right? So there's that, uh, that one title of the book, Ego is the Enemy. Um, I, I always would repeat that in my head just because um, sometimes when you, when you want something to go in a, in a certain direction, when I was younger, I think I wanted to get credit for it. And as I matured in my career, all I cared about was a positive outcome. And I didn't really need to get credit for it. I just wanted to guide it in that direction. Mm-hmm. So I, that's how I adjusted my my approach. If that answers your question, yeah. yeah. So and let's talk, can I t- and I'll go back to you for a second? So let's talk about teaching. So obviously, I had no problem with you know speaking my voice and doing different things. I know for a fact that there were other educators there as you do that hated what I did. And they, they hated it so much that sometimes they would minimize me and my efforts in front of their students, right? Why? And, and it still happens, by the way. Sure. I mean, it's always difficult to try to understand why someone else thinks something without having them here to speak on their behalf. But here was my assumptions at the time. You are 
taught to believe something to be true. And there is an indoctrination process that exists in all professions. Like we've, I've talked about it as a psychologist. You're taught to believe something to be true. The chemical imbalance idea, antidepressants as effective. And when you're taught something to be true, you believe it strongly. It's repeated over and over and over again. You might even grew up living that way. So many teachers had great academic experiences um, growing up. And that drove them to be a teacher. There, there are people who are going to do well in a traditional public school environment, and there's going to be people who do not do well. So you, you tend to believe certain things. The authority of the teacher giving you the information. Your job of a student is to absorb it, memorize it, learn it, and then demonstrate that you absorb that information on a test, right? So you begin to learn in society, we are conditioned to be obedient to the authority figure. There are a lot of teachers who enjoy that role, even the way a classroom is set up. They're in the front, everyone's in neat rows, you raise your hand. There's something that's powerful for, you know, about that. And in early research, psychology is actually a, a a very um, young field, you know, kind of developed in the early 20th century. But if you look through the writings in the early 20th century, uh, through the 1960s and so forth, when you talk about child development and child psychology research, there was so much about it that was around obedience, that, that, that child behavior is best identified by um, those who are obedient to their parents to the system versus those who uh, have quote-unquote behavioral problems. And so when you, as a teacher, were trying to change that paradigm, you know, with, within your classroom, that what was rewarded was independent and creative thought, not a regurgitation of information, and that grades were rather arbitrary, you know, that were, des- that were designed to be able to measure, you know, what somebody knew. And from what I recall, you didn't believe that that was an accurate measurement of one's ability or what they took from the class. They still don't. Yeah. And so when kids didn't know how to perform, they're conditioned to do certain things, and they walk into your classroom and everything is different. You're being rewarded for having an alternative viewpoint. You're being rewarded for a critical question. You're being rewarded for solving a problem. You're being rewarded for leading a group. That created a lot of anxiety and discomfort for the kids that were really good at following rules. Some of them would be tearful in my office as a counselor at that particular time because you know what they cared about? They cared about finishing in the top 10 of their class. Mm-hmm. And they were extremely anxious about not knowing what the rules are, how to be successful. They thrived in a certain environment. right? And then you took these kids who, who traditionally did not do well because by nature, this, this sitting in a class, following rules, being obedient, regurgitating information was rather aversive. 
So we, we would see these kids who traditionally did not do well in that environment in, in Kelly's class have much more success, right? They tended to be creative. They, they had leadership skills. They, they hated school but loved his class. Mm. So, you know, at that point, for me, it was that experiment. Because I, as a counselor, was not generally working with all those kids who thrived in that environment. I was working with the kids who were struggling. Right. And you could see the impact that it had on how they viewed themselves. and Because they, they recognized that they had potential. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they got to feel good about themselves. Mm-hmm. And we got to reward it in various ways. Right. And so, I mean, the greater question here, Kelly, that you bring up is how does obedience and conformity get conditioned in a society? And if we're going to talk about brainwashing, um, what are the techniques that are actually happening to get people to think and believe in a certain way? Can we start on the individual level for our discussion? Yeah, let's do it. I think um, when we talk about being brainwashed on an individual level, let's start with those who stay in abusive relationships, domestic violence victims. And I've always said to, to my colleagues that it's probably the most challenging situation that I have experienced in my career as a treatment specialist is when somebody comes in for treatment, when they're depressed, experience symptoms of acute trauma, post-traumatic stress, and you begin to learn and realize that they're still in that abusive environment. And they have been conditioned, almost brainwashed, to believe that they are the problem. So getting them to leave an abusive and controlling environment is extremely challenging because the idea that the abuser or the manipulator is the problem is not within their thought process. Mm-hmm. Right? This goes back to gaslighting, correct? Where yeah, we, we talked about this in the previous podcast, this distortion of reality, right? You can make it very difficult for an individual to reality test. So victims of abuse get hit, hurt, or emotionally tormented. And they're told that they brought it on themselves in some way. So there's this breakdown of the self that exists where you no longer kind of trust your your reality and this identification that you're a good person begins to um, kind of get shattered. But to be able to get to that point, we have to understand who is more susceptible to situations like that. Obviously, when we're talking about vulnerability to mass manipulation, not everyone is vulnerable to staying in an abusive relationship. And in 2021, we're much more aware of things like the sex trade, uh, that exists globally and all the efforts right now to try to protect young women from entering into the sex trade. We're much more aware of abuse. There was the me too movement that extended across what is sexual assault and what is violation of one's power or influence. But to be susceptible to being in relationships like that, Ultimately, that person has to feel some degree of dependence upon the manipulator or the abuser. And so those who are more vulnerable, maybe they have a history of a broken home. Um, They've been hurt by others or positions of authority or power in the past. 
may feel like they're more dependent upon that abuser abusive situation. Maybe it's economically, um, safety, security. It's so the survival thing that we, we just touched on previously. Back to survival. Yeah. There's a, that abuser or manipulator likely isolates that person from any support system. And anyone who would have an, you know, be, would be threatening to the ideas of the abuser or the manipulator, uh, he, he or she would be extremely attentive to that in the, in the victim's circle mm-hmm. and try to devalue that person. So the, the abuser manipulator at, at some point is intentionally looking for a certain personality, maybe even if unconsciously. I would think so, yeah. right? Um, and that, that personality is one that responds to being hurt or harmed, like getting hurt and apologizing, getting physically abused and apologizing. And when I said that, it was such it was so challenging and still is challenging for me as a therapist is when you start working with somebody to get them to see that it wasn't their fault. There is such cognitive dissonance around that. And there is such a fear that they could not live without that person. Like there's such a dependence that's formed that sometimes you get devalued as the therapist. Can you give an example of like just dialogue, like something like that? Cause I'm having a hard time. I mean, if they're coming to you because, you know, first of all, taking the step to say, look, I, I feel like as if there's, there's something going on and I want to talk to somebody that to me is a pretty valuable step. And then yeah. when they're coming to you, just give me an example of that interaction. Well, that's a good question. I probably should have, you know, spoke to that up front. is why would somebody come in? So they usually come in because they have depressed mood. They usually come in because they can't sleep. They're highly anxious. And wait, so they don't identify that they're in an abusive relationship. They may not identify that. Is it because maybe that's all they know? Um, it's generational. It might. It could be. Yeah. I mean, often it is. Like if you grow up in an abusive environment and you saw your father, you know, hitting your mother, for example, mm. it's much more normal. For that individual. And you can be conditioned to believe like that's what love is. That you care so much about that person that those type of emotions can be provoked. So someone might come in and they're viewing themselves as the problem. In fact, in a lot of situations, they might identify themselves to be mentally ill because that's what the abuser or manipulator has led them to believe. So they could feel disrespected if something in the house wasn't clean. If they asked them to take the garbage out and that wasn't, and you come home and that the abuser becomes angry and verbally or physically torments that person, that person believes that if they would have taken out the garbage, for example, then it would have never happened, right? That that's really disrespectful. But what we see often in male-female relationships is like, say, a female talks to another male, right? Just the idea of talking to another male or looking at another male can be punished with physical violence because that is betrayal and that is cheating. Does that happen in the animal kingdom just with alphas and, and, and animals anyway? I mean, are, are we taking what happens with any other creature and applying it to human behavior. 
It's a good question to look into. Um, I mean, you and I have, have talked about what happens in, in the animal kingdom and alphas as far as um, violence towards even the young and um, trying to hoard resources within a group. Yeah. But I think that's okay. more for our, our next podcast. Okay. Uh, maybe not so relevant here, but if we're talking about what happens in the conditioning process and what would leave somebody vulnerable mm-hmm. to quote unquote brainwashing, um, it's that this is consistently punished, right? And that person loses touch with the reality. So, so cheating could be talking to the opposite sex. Cheating could be, you know, a thought process. Like clients sometimes feel very guilty if they were treated nice by somebody and had a positive feeling towards them, for example. Mm-hmm. And then they believe that, that that is some violation of the relationship between the abuser. I feel horrible that my mind actually fantasized about being with that person. I had a friend years ago that she actually um, almost split up with her boyfriend because she dreamed about somebody else and she thought it was funny, but she told him and he was angry that she dreamed about somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) You laugh, but in session that would, that could be viewed as cheating. My wife had something wrong with me. My wife had a dream about me in her own, in her dream, you know, talking to another girl. And she, I remember her telling me the story and she was mad at me in the morning. (laughs) I started laughing at it. Of course she was like partially joking, but yeah, I guess the dream affects somebody. Sure. Yeah. So on the individual level, we have to look at who attempts to, to brainwash and why, right? So that could be an abusive partner, spouse, even a family member. And really it's to kind of maintain that person in their life for control, power, economic or sexual benefit. And there's usually an intense fear of losing that, that person. And then so the one who's, who's vulnerable to that is the one who feels some sort of, uh, you know, dependence on that abuser. We didn't really get into Stockholm syndrome, mm-hmm. but right. Like we've seen that psychological manipulation where somebody feels a, a loyalty to the one who's, who's abusing them. So, can we go into a little bit more now? Let's bring a group, organization, stuff like that into the picture. So then we went individual. Um, we know that there's manipulation. We've seen that. We've all probably had friends that may have experienced it. Perhaps we did. But now let's talk in a broader picture with brainwashing. Um, how about like things like marketing, businesses? Because this will be, can, can that happen now on a larger scale? Well, let's let's walk up the the ladder. So you're going a little bit too far now. All right. How about a religious organization, a cult, a terror organization? Okay. So that's a subset of a, of a society, and so there are there are steps in order to be able to condition somebody in a way to adopt new beliefs. Okay. Religion is a big one. I mean, that to me feels like ripe for discussion about brainwashing is this is it more common because of religion because of this idea of faith and um trying to understand things that you have to believe in and and feel like if you were to i mean religion plays in a a lot of certain areas Uh, if you don't conform then you are guilty and a sinner and can be ostracized yeah the thing about religion is there's so many religions worldwide. Yeah. 
and you used the word faith. Like I, I differentiate faith, spirituality from religion. Isn't religion more about group rules and group norms? And there's also a hierarchy. And this was, this is, and has been my concern with like the Catholic church, which we grew up in Mm -hmm. is there's a, there's an established hierarchy and we've seen within that hierarchy to be abuse, uh, abuse of that power and that power um, or the abuse can only occur if one has, you know, one follows the rules and there has to be some adoration or elevation of status of, of the individual priest, for example. Mm -hmm. But you see that hierarchy within the establishment of clergy all the way up to, to a Pope. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, that's, that's dangerous, right? Um, So if we have to look at like what has to happen in order for somebody to be vulnerable, Mm -hmm. there has to be some degree of isolation. So let's use cults. Let's talk about cults. Okay. Um, There has to be some degree of isolation. Because you have to remove that person from a support system and anyone who would provide information or a new way of thinking Mm -hmm. that differentiates from that leader of that cult or that hierarchy. And the leader has to be charismatic. I mean, has to be someone who is, well, maybe not the world's best speaker, but they have to be a standout individual, correct? Well, I think that that charming effect yeah. of being charismatic, like it ha- you have to believe in that that person uh, in, a, in almost like a godlike status has to be provided in order for that person to begin to believe what they're saying. So they can be very bright, charismatic, be able to communicate in ways that the the victim feels like they're truly understood. Okay. And then there's that assault on their own personal identity. So everything you think you are and everything you think you know is wrong. So it's this constant stream of information to create confusion. And when we talk about how this gets generalized to greater societies and population, we can talk about that, that, that confusion. So Kelly, you think you know what you know, but this is wrong. This, and here is why. And, there's often rules around it, right? The world is going to end. Those people are sinners. If you follow me, I will take you towards salvation. Or those people are ultimately going to harm you. They are less than. You can devalue that voice. Mm-hmm. But if you're with us, you will be saved. You are you are good. So it's constant distancing language, like those people, they, them, and just separate. And then, but if you're with us, and then you're creating that again, going back to in group and out group. And once you can convince somebody that you're part of the in group, then you're. I'm pretty sure you're probably golden as a cult leader. Yeah, you you can see there's emotional manipulation there. You have to induce guilt, shame, fear in some way, mm-hmm. and only then will you suppress logical thought. So, like when you're talking about these, there's initial steps isolate the individual kind of there's got to be this assault on everything they know and their personal identity and you have to induce some shame guilt or fear in order to depress that logic and create this confusion so when you talk about isolate the individual and the and the idea of a cult it's isolating the cult 
from the rest of civilization or their support system, whether or not exists or doesn't exist. So isolation can be a group of 50 people. Could be. It's 10 not people, just 15, 20 people. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that confusion um, is instilled on the individual. Um, I don't know what's right or wrong. And then the abuser clearly can state what is right. Follow these rules. And that, you know, what that does is it kind of... Uh, decreases that anxiety, that struggle with that uncertainty. When I follow the rules, I feel safer. I feel better. I feel like a good person. And same thing, you know, with the individual abuser in, uh, you know, domestic violence situation, they have these rules that they have to follow. And if they follow those rules, they're essentially rewarded for it. Right, and that's how it get the behavior gets shaped. As long as the, the uh, manipulation manipulators needs are met. Yes. And the manipulator can shower that person with love and attention, right? That's the reward. I love you when you follow the rules. You're safe. We're at peace when you follow my, as long as you don't piss me off, betray me, disrespect me, do something that I don't agree with, that you're fine, right? And so you can just see that 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 person becomes brainwashed to everything is good in my life when I'm following these rules. So you're rewarding obedience and agreement mm -hmm. and you're punishing disobedience. On a broad scale though, I just, it's hard to imagine that so many people could just be convinced still, but that's because I'm, I have a hard time stepping outside of my own thought process where I'm much more of a contrarian. I'm going to question on a broad scale though. So let's just say it, go back to like Jonestown with a cult these were individuals, I think our audience would be like, well, these people are not that bright. These are, these are very intelligent people that are falling into this manipulation where they feel it. Another one was called Heaven's Gate. You could look that up. Mm -hmm. That was the Hale Bob Comet. And, um, and the individuals that had committed suicide for the cause, mm -hmm. they were all, most of them, if I'm mistaken, but they were all like working for the tech industry. Uh, many of them had a lot of money. I mean, this is not something where you go, oh, well, it's just people that join cults and can be manipulated are all, they're not that bright anyway. But that's not true. That's, prob that's not even close to being true. Correct? Are there any other psychological experiments that do a better job explaining how that happens? Well, the ASH experiment. Kelly? Can I lead into this? Okay. Because we were talking about this earlier. And so I didn't realize that I was actually conducting the ASH experiment to an audience that I presented at uh, out in state college years ago until we talked about this podcast. So, so you weren't aware of it. I was the, not aware of you it. You just created so, this. And <laughs> so, so Go what, what sure. I wanted people to do in the audience, obviously it's a room full of educators. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wanted them to understand that in order to, you know, move forward or, or think, or be a little bit more, uh, take more risk with their, uh, their way of thinking with education, they have to break out of this kind of paradigm that exists. Right. So I, I put, I, I saw this video. This was, I did not invent this, but I was like, I'll just use this, mm -hmm. right? Put two circles uh, as a presentation, either, doesn't matter the color, but I think I use blue and red. And they're both identical. And you just put it on with a white background. But you, you mean in size? Yep, they're, right. they're both identical in size. And what you do is you show a blue and red circle, both are even, but you prime the audience by saying, um, by a show of hands, Right, you basically say, look, many of you are going to see these circles as being identical, but I'm telling you right now, 
one of them is larger. Mm. And I want you to really focus on that. And I'll give you 30 seconds to really look at this screen. You let it be silent, let them talk. And then, and then you go, how many of you believe the blue circle is the larger one? Well, a couple of people raised their hands, just a couple, which would anticipate. How many of you think the red circle? Just a couple. Thankfully, it was just a couple. It was only like out of uh, whatever, 100 some attendees, probably 20 people total raised their hand. Okay. I was like, that's awesome because they're using their what they believe and what they believe and what they know is probably that is equal. So I said it again. I said, oh, come on, that's not enough. I said, listen, you're going to be shocked. <laughs> you're going to be so shocked. And I, the charismatic presentation, uh-huh. everything I said, I just need to, let's get some more. I'm telling you one of these, right? One of these is larger. Did it again? More hands go up. More hands go up for the red, right? Uh-huh. And if I would have kept doing that, yeah. <laughs> I probably would have had 100%. And the reality was, at the end, I said they're both equal. And the point was, look at how easy it is to manipulate wow. and, and, get, and get people. And these to are all educators. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Love it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's about conformity. And on a mass scale, we are experiencing conformity and brainwashing right now. It's no secret that I believe that uh, mandates of a vaccine and loss of freedom related to any medical intervention is an assault on personal liberty and our democracy. And there are so many people right now that have been mass manipulated with information that they are led to believe that if I just follow the rules, I'm going to be provided greater freedom and independence. And those people who don't follow those rules are at, are risking my health. So it's for the collective good. Yeah. So that was our previous podcast. We mm-hmm. talked about understanding the nuance. And um, I think you've cautioned in previous episodes uh, to um, avoid anything in absolutes. Yeah. This concept of anti-vaxxers, for example. Mm-hmm. So if you're mandating a, a, a vaccine, for example, and you have to have passports in order to be able to move freely around society, that's extremely dangerous. And people would have to believe that that's not based on on scientific data. So since the scientific data doesn't support it, mm-hmm. right? Because it does not. So right now, the largest population-based study comparing the unvaccinated versus the naturally immune found that the vaccinated people are six to 13 times more likely to get infected, 27 times more likely to get symptomatic infections, and eight times more likely to be hospitalized. We know that they can get sick. We know they can spread it. So when, when a government system tries to mandate and give you freedom based on an injection, we should be concerned right. that we are starting to see the same techniques applied to society that have been applied elsewhere throughout history. Because that's an absolute. Everyone must get vaccinated. Everyone, everyone, everyone. must so get question, vac- Really? Everyone? Yeah. Everyone? Every human being, even, you know, it's, it's going to start moving towards kids. And we know from recent studies that 12 to 15-year-old boys are significantly more likely to get myocarditis than to actually be hospitalized for COVID. So when they're not, when government is trying to suppress this information, you begin to take a step back and say, for what purpose, for what cause? And we have to look at what is happening in greater society right now and how are we prone to being mass manipulated on a larger scale. Okay? And on a larger scale, and we've talked about this using Sean as the best example, <laughs> is the utilization of the authority bias. 
And that's what we saw in the Milgram experiments, that the authority bias was provoked. You're on Yale, you're Yale's campus, you're entering into a study, and the authority is the one, is the individual who's running the experiment. He must know better. Those people must be okay. So I need to just diffuse any responsibility and hand it over to the authority figure. So yeah, that's the nuance that I, that's important, right? So um, you, you always make fun of me with the authority bias, but I think when it comes down to certain subjects, maybe some people are more prone to accept the message of an authority if it's a topic or something that they don't have a very strong understanding or interest in. So maybe they do uh, believe uh, in authority. But there's other things that somebody could be like, you know, I'm interested in this and I'm going to dig into it a little bit deeper and understand it before taking any action. So you're really interested in what's happening with science and the medical industry. So you'll dig into it and you'll want to understand both sides of it and make the right decision for you. But that's not what everybody does. That's what an authority bias is, right? It's not, it's not all or nothing. But couldn't you... If we talk about news media in general, shouldn't all news media be providing that to the people? Shouldn't they be providing the nuances and differences on both ends? They should the be people? only reporting facts, not okay. editorial. So, so that's my point. So when you say, yeah, but you guys are looking at this, you have this, not not really expertise, but when, you, when you're questioning things and you're reading peer-reviewed things, not everybody's going to do that. I said, well, isn't that what the point of news media? They're the ones that should be doing this, but that's not what's happening What's happening is you're getting one side from an authority figure that is put up on a pedestal right now. That's my problem. I have mm-hmm. a huge problem with that. If you get a vaccine and you can still spread it, if you're naturally infected and you have greater levels of immunity and protection, why would there be a mandated vaccine? It's no longer about safety. Because of because of where people get their information. I want to take I want to go back to the Ash experiment. In the, in the actual video, which we should post, we should post the Milgram too. Okay. But oh well. In the actual experiment, remember, they're being shown three lines. And one of them is they're, they're asked to see w- um, which line is the same line as this, the same size, mm-hmm. similar to a circle, right? Mm-hmm. And there's one actor or actress in the group that says the wrong answer, but then everyone else says the wrong answer too. They're all actors except one person. That one person goes against all they know, all they realize, all the logic. They see it in front of them, but they will go against their own Mm. mind because they just want to fit in. When you are on the news media, my point being, that's exactly what's happening. They're forcing people to see only the way that they want to see it, never once bringing up uh, the Israeli study and things like that. So the ASH experiment is an example of brainwashing because it goes against what they truly believe they're doing, uh, what the group is doing. It's conformity, right? So, I, I believe it's a step in brainwashing. Okay, so like this it, is what I'm so struggling you can, with. You can give up, what we know about the vulnerability of human beings is you can give up or suspend, or mm-hmm. detach from what you believe to be truth. Like such doubt can be created mm-hmm. that you can give up your own beliefs and thoughts and adopt those from others. So that's where we're drawing the line between just influence and brainwashing. Because influence... What's the I would, dif- why I, draw that line? I would say marketing is influence. Yes. But you can be influencing somebody with 
facts and benefits of the product that you're selling or lies or lies if, is isn't if they're, if they're lies isn't it more brainwashing well there's a book called brandwashing the whole premise of i'm sure you had to if you've never heard of it i can share it with you the whole premise <laughs> of marketing is to is the brainwash it's to not uh, only so i think up. you're confusing influence with brainwash i I am. This is that positive in- intention, right? Like Be- because I'm, I was a marketer, I wasn't trying to so brainwash people. You are complicit people. with brainwashing. You don't want to see yourself yeah, that I, way. I don't know. But, but part of marketing is to break down the self and the individual. Do you like understand what we're doing to people in this society by provoking and creating the insecurities that we do, and then and then use it to sell a product? Like current social media, like Instagram, for example, or these TikToks, like well, everything I, is about your physical appearance, especially for young women. Yeah, let's go back to the um, the absolutes. There are pro- yes, there are people that are definitely using brainwashing techniques. They are manipulating. They are lying to market a product, but not everyone. There are people that are marketing their product because it does provide an unmet consumer need and it can improve their lives. That's that's what that's what influence is. Is it marketing? Wait, I, I got a call. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. So, Come on. <laughs> yeah, let's, <laughs> go. let's go. He even uses this word, right? Like more materialism improves lives. I didn't say materialism. Well, isn't that what a product is? No, I, I said unmet consumer needs. I could be selling you water. <laughs> you need water. Water's free. Yeah, we have it in tap. All right, bad example. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right is, it mar- is it marketing about, oh, I don't know the, again, so, but isn't it about repeating messages over and over again so that a person suddenly believes that yes. this is it? Over yeah. Okay. Yeah. What, um, what we learned is that you need to hear something eight times before it sticks with you. Okay. And so if we go back to the ash experiment, the repetition of people saying, this is it. Two plus two is five. We talk about that in 1994. Uh, uh, yeah. Repeat, repeat, repeat until finally you've changed the perception of someone, not because they believe it, but because they have to believe it in order to survive. Well, how about this? A great example is uh, an antidepressant, right? So there is no pill that is antidepressant. It does not exist. There is an antidepressant pill. There it's, is. It's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, they assign that word to it, right? Yeah. Yes. And, uh, what we see in society is just a continued increase of use of that pill. Think of uh, under belief that it can make cosmetics. them feel better. It's called makeup. Make up, make up. You're you're doing your face. You're making it up. It's not make down. I mean, there's there's words that have been used through time to have positive intentions. But what I what I've always positive influence. What I've found to be evil about antidepressant. Forget we have the previous podcast where there's widespread fraud, mm-hmm. right? So the intention is to only sell the product at the expense of safety. But the use of that word makes people believe that what they feel, what their experience is, is a disease. And that disease is called depression. And that this pill is anti that. Mm-hmm. And that is brainwashing when it changes how somebody actually thinks and they adopt new beliefs. And I tell my clients all the time that... If you're allowed to feel sad, you can't be depressed. If you're allowed to experience certain things and understand them in context, you cannot be depressed. And that blows people's minds to think about it that way. And I can 
write it out on a, on a board and explain to them, because if you believe you're depressed, you're going to act in a certain way. You're going to think in a certain way. If you just accept that you're sad or you're struggling, or this is a place in your life, well, you're going to respond in a completely different way. So the conditioning to believe that what they are experiencing is outside their control to sell a product, it's the adopting of new beliefs. To me, that's brainwashing, right? And people, good people, can work for the pharmaceutical industry mm-hmm. and believe that, that that pill improves society. Physicians believe that too, yeah. based on nothing more than that marketing. Because if you go and you look into the data and you value the science and you work with people long-term who've been on it, you realize it's bullshit. Right. It opened my eyes when, you, when I read that book yeah. by Whitaker. So that's, I mean, these are all examples of how brainwashing on a mass scale could occur. And listen, it happens so often from the pop-ups on our computer to the uh, commercials that are thrown at us on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't even question that reality anymore, right? And so that mass confusion and you know, what we know is what we know, and we don't know what we don't know. And that's the hard thing about being able to connect with reality. So what bothers me right now is the discrediting of any information that challenges what whatever this norm is, whatever this narrative is. I mean, do you get to the point where you're just like, wow, this is brainwashing 101. Discredit any information that comes our way, right? That, that, that proves or, or disproves the narrative. So concerning, right? And this is highlighting the authority bias in action and big tech and government have been able to determine this, that if you have an authority figure repeat messages over and over and over and over again, it enhances the credibility of that message until it's adopted as belief. And the pharmaceutical companies knew this in hiring physicians to promote their product and using physicians for academic ghostwriting. So they weren't even involved in the studies, but they write that up. So if it's coming from an authority figure, we're more likely to adopt it to be true. And so we see this in politics. We had our election in 20, what was it, 2020, 2019. Um, actually, it was 2016 with, uh, with Trump repeating the crooked Hillary, crooked Hillary, crooked Hillary, repeating it over and over again. And then you're like, I'm not going to vote for that person. She's a criminal. So it happens in, in politics for the sole purpose of influencing a small base of people that are in the middle, undecided. Well, in that 2016 election, um, we can step back now and we can see what the marketing was, right? So in order for Donald Trump to become president, he wasn't going to win an election based on his achievements, because he didn't have a history in politics. There's nothing really to reflect back on. He was a private businessman. And in, if, you know, if you look back at his history, not always that successful. I'd say he's one of the most successful marketers. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the Trump brand mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. everywhere. And he marketed that election. And the way that he could do it is he needed to discredit yeah. what was you know, traditional government and media. So you had to no longer trust the, the messages coming from the media, which mm-hmm. were generally you know, very left-wing. And then you had to be an outsider and you had to provoke the emotions related to the corruption of the U.S. government and its politics. And he did a very good job, his campaign did a very good job of repeating those messages over and over and over Do and over Do you think again. he brainwashed people? 
I think he brain, yeah, I think the marketing on his brainwash, sure. I think there was brainwashing. There's also brainwashing on the opposite side. Of but course. I think one of the things that I saw during that, that time period, though, was that it was the first time that I heard other people questioning um, how can you go into civil service as a politician and a $175,000 salary and five years later be a multimillionaire. And I think that message resonated, but that might be a message that should resonate, right? There are certain things where that, I think he did a very uh, compelling job of getting people to question our current situation with our government and called out those lifelong politicians. And yeah. I think it just- the swamp. Yeah, it attracted, well, there you go. That was mm. repeated over. Swamp. And that attracted a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and, and some of it might be a, a good thing to point out that, look, our government- we could do without the corruption. Let's get rid of it. Mm -hmm. But on the same side, he comes from a business practice where there's corruption. <laughs> no, it's so, it is silly. The other component of this is that you have to overwhelm people with very complex information and then rely on the authority figure to be able to simplify that for us and mm -hmm. to establish that trust and credibility in that person. Yeah. And we see this now, like Sean, when you and I have discussions over making decisions and what's happening in the world, often you say, how do you even know what's true anymore? Yeah. You know, I've heard you say that. Um, and that almost like diffuses responsibility from you personally. Like, well, if I don't know what's true anymore, then it just justifies me continuing to do what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So this leads to uh, a great concept that I want to bring up to you guys called ideological subversion. Yeah. Okay. And I'm hoping that you can find this video to show people. It's pretty, again, it's pretty in your face. But in 1984, there was a Russian defector uh, from, I believe, KGB. His name was Yuri Bezmenov. Mm -hmm. I know you said you've seen this video. I'm hoping other people will watch it. It's just an interesting set. But the I ideological it, yeah. subversion based off of what you just said to Sean is the change of perception and reality to a mass extent where uh, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions. Oh, I'm a victim. And so there are four stages. One of them is called demoralization and it takes about 20, 25 years or so. And that's when you take an entire generation and use the educational system to program and think and act a certain way and then take over higher level positions later on, obviously, as they grow up in the government and everything. Any thoughts on that? <laughs> I have lots of thoughts <laughs> on that. Yeah, what's happening right now is just, it's, uh, the, the world is very confusing. And, and the reason I bring up Bezmenov is because we know that, that uh, the society that he came from, at least in communist, uh, communist Soviet Union, that was purposely and intentionally a brainwashed situation for generations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So people who are brain, I mean, people who are citizens <laughs> <laughs> might, 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 be, might be questioning, like, what's the ultimate goal? The end goal for what purpose, right? Uh, yeah, I always ask that question. You always do. And it's very hard for people to understand the, the drive of power that is biologically ingrained in some people. So that is where, when we get into this discussion of different personalities, including psychopathy, which if you are 96% of the population who has a conscience, you have a very difficult time understanding the mindset, the beliefs, and the experience of someone who doesn't have one. So... Wait, you think about 4% of the population has psychopathy so or are psychopaths? It's pretty established just from research right, at well, this we'll point. We'll get into this in a future podcast because that, that to me just seems like a ridiculous amount of people. 
It is. Yeah. It, but it's 4% of the population, but 4% is 1 in, in 25. And there's a great book called The Psychopath yeah, the Next Psycho- Door. One or that one too in The Psychopath Test. That's a good one. The too. Psychopath yeah, Test. Yeah, yeah. Ransom. Yep. Um, and so that's the dark side of human existence, which Sean has a lot of trouble with acknowledging because I think it's difficult for him emotionally to accept it. It's been sunshine and lollipops in my life. And Honda. <laughs> leave the brands out of this but there no but there is fear provoked in this idea that you know that that those who we need to trust and hand over some degree of control for our well-being whether it's a physician whether it's a criminal justice system whether it's a government official whether it's a health bureaucrat that those people may not have our our best interests in mind and that is that creates some degree of insecurity and a whole lot of fear and the cognitive dissonance that's created. We have to resolve that in some way. And one way to resolve that cognitive dissonance is to discredit it or say it's so rare and it doesn't impact us. But the truth of the matter is that if you are of higher intelligence and you are more narcissistic or psychopathic, you are generally going to be drawn to positions in career of high degrees of influence, power, and stimulation. And so I, I, although 4% of the world population fits within that mold, there's going to be a greater percentage of people in positions of power, influence, politics. So that's why it's so important as a society, as an individual, to be able to have both the freedom, number one, to be able to make decisions that are in the best interest of yourself and your children, your family, but also have the freedom of information and things like informed consent. So if, if censorship is going to be the enemy of liberty and, and freedom of thought, freedom of choice, mm-hmm. because if you discredit or eliminate the stream of information that's alternative, right, then that eliminates or extremely limits your viewpoint to be able to adopt other alternative views. That's that isolation factor, mm-hmm. right? So when we see mass censorship currently, that should be highly concerning for us as we are now walking down that path of, of brainwashing an entire society. That's what happened in you know, this, the former Soviet Union. That's what happens in communist China. They isolate you from alternative viewpoints and you only adopt the party line or that belief. And we know from previous experiments, we know from history that we are vulnerable to do that. And so we challenge everybody in the listening audience. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a medical intervention, whether it's a law, be careful in giving up anything related to your individual rights or freedoms for the good of someone or something else, because that's a dangerous path and those mass manipulation techniques are implementing, being implemented right now for us to think think about things in different ways. You guys have comments on that? So I want to, well, yeah, I mean, uh, there's there's actually former uh, CCP individuals that are now stepping out that have come over to the U.S. that are actually giving interviews only on not on the ma- <laughs> not on mainstream, but they are, and they're saying you guys are walking down a dangerous path. I mean, they're saying it; they've been through it. Um, that being said, I'm going to challenge us because the question that I would have listening is, okay, what are the top five, you know, I always do lists, but what are the top things that I can do to prevent myself from being brainwashed, 
right? Yeah. What is what is one of them? What's one thing if you were going to say to them, like, this is what you need to do. If you don't want to be a victim of manipulation, because we're all going to be at some form or fashion, you can't, you cannot, you can't live uninfluenced. There is always going to be influence because of bias. Mm -hmm. That being said, how do you get people that ask the question, fine, maybe we are being brainwashed, but well, then what can I do about it? I think the first thing you have to do is be able to question authority, right? Always ask the question, why for anything and be able to try to say, what are we missing? Mm-hmm. What is an alternative viewpoint? You, when, we, when you talk about education and the need to be able to think critically, I think that's a national security issue, right? I think that's about- Critical thought. I absolutely do. It's an, an entire generation has been taught not to think critically under the guise that teachers are like, oh, I teach critically. It's in there. It's in, and I'm like, you're teaching them to take a standardized test. That, that, the literal, that, that is what has happened in the last 20 odd years. I mean, years. The, the one takeaway for me on this whole thing is the most important thing to prevent uh, extreme influence or brainwashing is critical thought. It's the only way. You know what they took out the SATs? I mean, I'll fact check this, but they took out analogies. Do you know what you know how important analogies were? We're talking about syllogisms, the if then then this premise statements, things like that. The basic understanding of critical thinking comes from premises. Mm-hmm. When you have an argument given to you, you have to say premise one, this, 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 premise two, this, then there's a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Completely gone. Yeah. Except for maybe debate, like you said. Maybe there's a few classes that'll teach it. But yeah. no what I think is brainwashing is is masks. I think that's an example of brainwashing. It was interesting if you listen to the Joe Rogan podcast with Sanjay Gupta. Mm, I did. Which is, you know, just absolutely fascinating. And they do get into that aspect of like masks. And even Sanjay Gupta, you know can laugh at the idea of like cloth masks as being effective, right? You got all those videos out there, like you can vape and smoke right through the mask and it just, you know, all the particles come through and, and the particles for coronavirus are smaller than that, right? So they, they, they go right through the surgical masks, the cloth masks. It's only the N95 mask that's going to provide any protection. But you see people out there with their bandanas on and what I find brainwashed are like these people, they still come into our practice. We see them in everyday life. They view like they believe that that, that mask is like some shield that stops the coronavirus. And if you're, uh, if you wear it, you're safe. And the anxiety and fear that is provoked in people is irrational. So it actually suspends any rational thought. Now, if we're going to be critical or, or question authority, think critically, all that information is out there. Uh, the studies are easily accessible and read, and they're all going to prove the same thing. It does not stop community spread. But you have to get to those studies first, and that's where the censorship comes in. Mm-hmm. If a normal individual wakes up and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check this out, and they go to Google, they're not going to find your studies. No, not, not right away. But they're accessible. Um, True. They're, they are accessible. Even the CDC acknowledges that there's no strong science to support it, other than the N95, right? Mm-hmm. The N- and, and you know most people aren't wearing N95s. I mean, I don't know, I don't see anybody. No. So the idea, like these kids going to school with these masks on, it's absolutely criminal, and it just demonstrates to us how we're conformity. conditioned. It's conformity. It's conformity. It's a symbol. You're doing you're doing things just to say you're doing it, mm-hmm. and that's dangerous. 
And so if we're going to question authority, you know, don't ever do something just because someone told you to do it. You, you know, question the why. Now, I, I'm, I'm forced with having to, um, you know, this coming weekend, my daughter is a lead in a play. And they're making them wear masks on stage. It's an absolute joke of idiocy to the highest extent. And then people, everyone who enters into the theater is going to have to wear some cloth mask that's not going to do anything, mm-hmm. right? And you just, you just, someone like me just feels bad doing it because it's so stupid. And you're just following a rule for rule stake. And you just look around you and you feel like you're just cattle being prodded along. I hate that feeling. Right, and if we all demonstrated some degree of civil disobedience and independent thought, then we don't allow these things to happen, right? But people aren't willing to step outside those rules. And if you were the one person causing a scene, it would be what we started this talking about: is if one person's getting beat up, will somebody else jump in there, or everybody goes with the group? Everybody will go with group in that. And I'm forced to have to wear a mask to watch my daughter on stage. Mm -hmm. Now I can try to take it off and try to push something, but it's just a scene that's going to distract from take away from it's going to take away from the kids that are there. And I would not do that. Right. And, and so like, this is the, these are the situations that we're in. What's also absolutely ridiculous is these arbitrary rules that were developed. Like someone tests positive for coronavirus, even though these are kids and they have nothing more than a cold, you get contact traced and my daughter would have to sit home for a certain number of days, just because someone contact tracer, even though she doesn't have the virus at all, even she, she tests, tests negative. So since she's the lead in the play, the teachers are isolating her in school all week leading up to the play. She's not allowed to be around anybody. That's ridiculous. I feel like those are old mitigation techniques that at the start of the pandemic, they were doing. No, they're, they're still they're there still because doing Brooks uh, had a sore throat two weeks ago and, uh, we my, <laughs> I don't want to say we mistakenly took him because that's not true. We took him because we thought it was strep. Mm. And if it were strep, he would have gotten the antibiotics and he'd be able to go to school. It wasn't strep. So he had to stay until he got a negative test. And then the twins had to stay because they got, you know, we had to wait for a negative test. Mm-hmm. And so now we're being, you know, what was once, uh, hey, if you're sick and you have a fever, stay home is if you have a sore throat, you're going to be out for quite a few days until you're at, you're at the mercy of a test, a positive or a negative test result. And many of them still come back as false positives. So now you have to say, well, can we get another test? Because we want to make sure that he has, it. I mean, listen, if he has, has, uh, if he's sick, obviously we'll keep him home, but we've always done that. If he's yeah. a fever, yeah. I just think I agree with Roger on this one. We've gone way too far. Mm-hmm. That's that brainwashing, particularly with the mass as a symbolic gesture. Uh, it's out there. I, I totally believe it i think the vast majority believe what you believe as well and even though the media is telling us the opposite i don't i don't believe them 100 i just don't i'm not seeing it in in my my conversations and watching twitter and looking at it i think people are just they're fed up they're done and they're just saying let's let's move on from this do you know what i'm really nervous about as far as the future over 40% of the U.S. population is either obese or morbidly obese. So guess what's going to happen? It's going to be a continued breakdown of illness and sickness for those individuals. If we're conditioned to, for a lot of, us three here are extremely active and very much interested in, in health. 
and we're in good shape. We have strong immune systems. Go back to our podcast on on certain things like life-changing habits. We value exercise, meditation, sun exposure, moving the body, nutrient density, foods you put in. My life is around that. And with it comes a degree of strength and health. If our lives are restricted and our freedoms inhibited by those who sit in front of the television, overeat, eat processed food that's going to make them sick and diseased, and our responsibility is to protect them, mm-hmm. I feel like we're in, a, we're in a dangerous spot. Because I, have an, I have an individual have a right to live my life in the way that I, that I do. Like I can't, I'm not accountable or responsible for you if you're going to eat Cheetos, drink beer, and watch the news. Mm. You're going to be sick. You're going to break down. And when you look at the stats for this coronavirus, it's overwhelmingly those people who are going to be, who are at risk. And, you know, when people talk about a 99.7%, you know, survival rate, we, for, we don't look at those who are actually developing severe symptoms, the hospitalizations, right? Yep. You pull out the young people, you pull out the healthy. This is a cold at best. This is a cold. And now we're all conditioned to believe that this thing is so dangerous to all of us. And if it's not, well, then it's dangerous to, to your grandmother or it's dangerous to somebody else. And now you still have a responsibility. What's your responsibility? Give up your, give, give up your freedom to work in a certain way, mm-hmm. to live in a certain way. It's just steps in a process to give up your individual rights for some collective good. And the collective good is the idea of brainwashing. Because all you're going to have is you're going to have an elite separate class who obviously is able to do whatever they want. You know, this theater of masks, they get to go to restaurants. They get to live free. They only put the mask on when the camera's there. Yeah, they've been caught on hot mics a lot, a lot saying that exact thing. It's just for theater. Um, I'm just doing this because I'm being followed by a Republican or I'm being Mm -hmm. followed by a Democrat. I mean, this is crazy. And I, I, I want people to wake up. But to do that over and over and over again is the mass conditioning process. Like we can bring other reasonable people in here and they're going to debate the, they're going to debate the merits of a, of a mask based on what, what they were told. Yeah. They're going to debate the merits of social distancing, of lockdowns on, on school rules around the mitigation of the spread based on what, what they're told. Right. And, the Nordic countries or other countries that did not put these, these, this level of um, lockdowns and restrictions on their population have significantly better outcomes. Significantly, right? And they're able to maintain their individual liberties and their freedoms. So when we talk about conditioning, we're talking about its, its short-term consequences, but being aware of the long-term consequences on how you at the individual self can be broken down and create mass confusion, have a difficulty in reality testing, and then ultimately you hand over what you did believe to be true to an authority figure and you adopt their new beliefs. That in itself is brainwashing. You're adopting new beliefs that's impacting your behavior and it's based on what you were told.
Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.